Welcome to CEC Explains, your deep dive into fascinating subjects from the worlds of engineering and the environment, brought to you by civil and environmental consultants. And now from our CEC studios around the nation, this is CEC Explains. Today's program is called Kicking the Tires, Things You Need to Know Before Purchasing and Developing Real Estate. Hi, my name is Mary Guiney, and I'm Strategic Development Officer with Civil and Environmental Consultants. And my guest today is Tony Rosenberger, President and Chief Operating Officer of Chapman Properties, a real estate development company located in southwestern Pennsylvania. Tony is a graduate of Penn State University, and he has over 35 years experience in commercial property development and construction in southwestern Pennsylvania. At Chapman, Tony oversees the development and leasing of over 1 million square feet, primarily of industrial buildings, at the same time while maintaining over 90% occupancy in all of the company's projects. Tony, welcome. Thanks for having me, Mary. I appreciate it. All of our histories are always so interesting, but mine comes a little further from, uh, from what everybody else is. I uh, grew up in a little town of Ambridge, and my parents were self-employed there, so I had the opportunity to go to private school. And in my transportation to and from that school for the four years, I drove by a steel mill that was operating called a Empire's Company. I knew very little bit about steel. Our, our parents sort of kept us out of that because they didn't want us to be steel workers. Yeah, I'm first-generation American, and uh, they're sense was if you're in america you're going to school and you're going to make something to yourself so i drive by the steel mill every day and they would pour iron ore am buyers company made malleable iron which is basically steel that was soft and the way that they'd soften it was with chromium and lead so the the environmental issues that happened in this facility i had very little knowledge of until much later in life. So move time forward, I go through school, I come back, I start a construction business uh, in the town of Ambridge, and my focus was industrial. So again, move time forward, I start the business on our, well, my, my wife and I had a 50-acre farm outside of Ambridge, and we start the business there, it grows, and I have to get out because I'm on an agricultural piece of property. So we were not zoned for uh, business, for uh, contracting business. So I'm forced to move forward on a piece of property that I thought eh, might be interesting. And I'm driving by this steel mill every day going to this property that we're going to buy. And we're going to move the business there. So one day, for whatever reason, I get the, uh, the bug to say, I'm going to call it for sale sign. I made the offer on the property and I had an amount of money that wasn't sufficient to buy to my name <laughs> and uh, the net of it was they accepted the offer and gave me a year to close it. So I end up with 88 acres and 790,000 square foot of old steel mill that has grown over seven years worth and the end of it is it's got a, a scrapyard that was there that I did not know that was full of lead and chromium. So we close on the property, we move our business there, we renovate the buildings, we begin to fill buildings and, and life is going to normal. And my first environmental review of this came two years into the building, which would have been 1979. 
And environmental reviews at that point were, we didn't know about, <clears throat> excuse me, phase ones, phase twos, didn't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. That was the dawn of that. And, kind of and it really was the dawn of it. And, and I'm looking for an environmental engineer. This is again, 1979. And those words weren't yet scripted. Right. So I find a guy that sort of understands what I want to do, and it was a downtown firm, and, and he was an older gentleman that was probably a better educator than anything else. <clears throat> but he basically came in and took soil samples and said, the first thing we're going to look for is heavy metals. And I thought that was a ban. I didn't know that heavy metals was something. So uh, the end result of it is I found out the hard way why environmentals are so important in industrial development. And in that particular site, uh, we encapsulated the heavy metals with three foot of soil, and it was usable ground as long as it wasn't residential. Uh, since we've sold that property, you know, 79, 89, 87, and we bought the Armco Steel Company right next door to it, which didn't have the environmental issues, uh, which is today another industrial park. So my, my, my history has always been in heavy industry. I've always liked that look of the big old hunking buildings and that was just what I enjoyed. And I've been fortunate to be able to practice it my entire life. And then also learn on the job about things like, you know, evaluating real estate before you buy it. You had to go through some tough uh, situations and then got out of it, fortunately. Education always Money. It does cost money, and uh, and that going forward now, there's a lot of tools you can use to help look at real estate more quickly than you ever did before, and uh, and now there's reasons to do it that you can prevent from buying something that you know you don't want to take on the risk. But we're going to talk more about that. Need CEUs? Want to learn more from our experts on topics like air permitting, the Clean Water Act, and environmental regulations? Then sign up for our environmental training courses at cecinc.com slash etc. So, you know, moving fast forward from 78, 79 to today, 2021, over the last 10, say 10 or 15 years, what have you changed when it comes to looking at real estate and determining what kind of site constraints there are? What kind? How do you kick the tires as a, as a developer before you buy a piece of property? Well, we currently maintain about 3 million square foot of space. Our lead sale facility is still our heaviest industrial. And when we began the process at a buyer's company of kicking those tires is when we, and this is long before I became a partner in Chapman Properties, I was a standalone contractor and I was brought in to do a determination of whether this had value or not. And my experience in three previous mills gave me that. Mm -hmm. So Joe Mulock from Mulock Steel, my partner Steve Thomas's father-in-law, had called and said, hey, D, I got a place for you to go look at elite sale. You know where that is? I said, Joe, I live in Ambridge. I mean, it's down the street. He said, it's called Bethlehem Steel. It's like, wow, I played in there, Joe. I rode bicycles through it. No problem. So said, I'm shipping you a key. You go down and take a look at this thing and think what you what you want to think. But I like what you did in your park. And I like the fact that you seem to have a sense of what goes on here. But I'd like you and me to talk before we go any further with this piece of property. The net of the whole thing was Joe bought the property. 
His son-in-law moved back to California, who was Steve Thomas. And Steve and I partnered up 14 years ago and became uh, what we are today, which is an investor developer in Pittsburgh. So circling back to your question, how do you do that? I learned a lot in that 20 year period of what not to do and what to do. And the most important part of it was, what's the feasibility of this from a marketing standpoint, from a financial standpoint? And the reality of it is, how much effort do you want to put into this property to make it a valuable piece that will return your investment? So that's sort of the scenario that we look at today on all buildings, not only the heavy industry. So you almost work backwards. You figure out what use you want to have it for, and then work backwards to see if it's worth taking the risk. Do you, um, is, is something like development costs something you factor in early or, and, uh, and time, because it seems like developers that we work with, like yourselves and others, really look at time. And we need to be uh, in construction in 18 months, and you work backwards from there. Is that how you set the tone for the project is based on when you need to finish and work backwards? It, it typically is driven by the tenants that you have and the amenities that you want. Coming from the, the heavy industry side, typically you've got a tenant that really doesn't have a lot of choices anymore in where they're going to go. If they're going to be in manufacturing uh, and it's heavy manufacturing, you truly need to look at the, the facility from the aspect of how feasible is it for that tenant? Is it 42 foot high? Does it have 30 ton cranes? Can I get rail service? Do I have access to the river? All of those things all come into it. And then you back into the fact that how does the building look from an environmental from a feasibility, from an expansion, all of those things. Because when most of the older properties were built, they weren't built to handle 75-foot tractor trailers. They weren't built to handle 350-ton rail cars. So even though the infrastructure may be there, it may not have the, the needed water flow, uh, the, the amount of pressure that you need for a sprinkler system. So. I think it is, it, it, it's driven by so many things, but I look at it now after 40 years of doing this and I say most of it is gut. Most of it, you walk in and you get a feel for, I like it or I don't. And I think that a tenant, when they walk in, they say the same thing. Uh, so you got to take a perspective of looking at it from your tenant's perspective, I, and go in and use your gut to determine whether this could work or not. And then, then, but you must rely on data and studies because that's why that's why you work with us, right? We're doing the engineering evaluations, the the due diligence for you, the environmental liability review, and then you take those reports that we prepare, and then you factor them in. So you're using seventy five percent gut and twenty five percent studies from. from I think it's flip flop. I think we Uh, get twenty five percent gut, seventy five percent fact. Is it financially feasible? You know, is the environmental something that you can overcome or are you going to have residual going down the road? Is something going to come back to bite you because your gut says, wait a minute, they manufactured widgets here. Mm-hmm. And all of those widgets had potassium chloride on it. Yep. wonder if potassium chloride melts away. You know, those are the things that, that you sort of, where that's where your gut takes you. And then, you know, those sleepless nights over will it finance. You know, can we fill the rest of the vacancy? All of those things are all parts that follow suit. 
that I have never looked at a property to date, and, and we still buy them, as you know. You're, you're just in the process of a couple of them now. I have never looked at a property and never looked back and said, Mike, that was wrong. Now, I'm not saying that it's 100% right, but there are properties that I've looked at, walked in and said, nope, see, it's a bargain. It's not a bargain. My God right. says, something's move wrong. On, brother. Something's your wrong. spidey senses yep. kick in, right? Yep. And I've worked with you when your spidey senses kick in. And I, I enjoy that process because you usually don't get that kind of exchange with your developer clients. It's it's a fun experience working with you on that, especially the kind of problem solving that we do together. And it's fun. I'm going to because obviously uh, you've been a part of our world for the last 25 years. And, and I go back to my CEC drawings all the time. That obviously new people, new employees, we're going to bring new people into the organization, and they too are going to bring people with them. Mm -hmm. There's never been a conference room that I've sat at with any part of our development team and ever came up with a problem in the fact that I could pick up the phone call from Steve Donaldson all the way through our new guys that are coming into it, Jonathan Farrell, and and not be able to at least get an answer or, I don't know, but I'll get back to you and have somebody get back to you. We look at CEC is the most value for the dollar and the dollar is never the lowest. Mm -hmm. And that's how we see it. I'm glad you see value in that because that's what we strive to, to achieve and we teach our people about that. You know, we have a vested interest in the success of our clients and the projects, and you have a vital role in, in the play, and then you got to do it, or maybe this firm isn't for you, just the way it works for us. There's a tremendous amount of diversity in your staff, so when we yeah. do have a water problem, we don't know, but let me get you the job, then he knows where we have to go. Right. And that's sort of the thing that we play. That's another guy. Mm -hmm. You really have to feel like you're content with the answers that you're getting. Not only are they good answers, but they're practical in the realm of what you're working in. Mm -hmm. And that's another important part of it. And this current phase of where we're going is, is not so much heavy industry anymore, it's medium industry. And that's a different ballgame, and it's been very helpful, and your input to it has been great because it's more of the asbestos things, it's more of oils, it's more of things that are a little different than when we were back at heavy metals. And, Right. Well, you knew dirty was dirty. And uh, these circumstances are, you don't know one way or the other. It's kind of gray. And you have to measure risk for those gray properties to make sure that they could fit into what you want to do here. But I do understand what you're saying. And then, you know, Jonathan, Jonathan does the wetlands work and stream restorations and relocations and permitting. And those are oftentimes could be a sticky wicket and certainly can limit the usability of a particular property, could cut your property use in half. And without looking at those kinds of situations early in the process, you don't really understand the value of the real estate, let alone how much developable land you're going to be buying. Well, and it is never it's never a joy in talking to Jonathan. <laughs> I love him. He's a great guy. He knows his stuff and he knows it well. The unfortunate yeah. part is it always brings with it a fee or a cost or a time setback. Right. And none of those things the developers like, and I'm sure Jonathan's like, well, that Rosenberger, he is really difficult. <laughs> no. Not. It is just the reality of what we do. Nobody wants to lay. It's expensive. It is. And it gets more expensive. But I think what you were able to characterize there is three things. He could tell you what is there, how big a problem it is, how much it would cost to fix it, and how long it would take. Long. So the fact that he could give you the whole story 
I think is, a, is an attribute to him and his, and his skill sets and the team that he has working on your projects. Um, you know, so we talked about the kind of gut reaction to looking at property and making a thumbs up. And then you bring in the experts and you rely on the data to make some some good choices. Are there any projects that you worked on that you're willing to share that you came up with something unforeseen or you didn't think it was going to be as big a concern as it was? Uh, do you have an example or two? There's a, there are two different worlds in the development business, concern and money. <laughs> <laughs> so I think until and even post-placement of edit, there's always a concern. Yeah. Because you don't know. The unknown, when you're buying 150 acres of land that has had a multiple of things done on it, and you've done borings, you've done all of the environmental things that are necessary, water flow tests, monitoring wells, all of those things, it only adds to the concern that the next thing that we find may be something that is going to be very expensive. So it, the industrial development world that we live, we Chapman live in, is not like most real estate developers' world. When you build a shopping center, unless you've torn something down, you're taking a, a flat piece of grass that was grown corn 50 years ago, and you're turning it into a shopping center. So your concern goes away as soon as they find stable soils. Right. That's good. We move on. Our world's completely different from that, particularly in heavy industry. So going back to an example, uh, long before Chapman Properties, the AM buyers heavy metals was a surprise. Mm. And it was a surprise at the time that uh, money was very difficult to get if you didn't have, at that point, a, a environmental certificate. But you didn't know what the banks were looking for in environmental certificates. So, most of the time, it was, did you have an environmental review? Yes, it was a check mark. That's all you had to do. That was what it was in the first rounds of this stuff. In about 1986, I think Mellon was the one that sold the JL property in Alaquipa and had to take it back because what was under it was such a problem. And I don't remember the details, and it's unimportant at this point. But it was mid-80s that they started to really focus on what was here before, go back to the sandboard maps, find out where, how, what, when, why, what could have happened here before. So now you're playing uh, the part of the role of, geez, i got to be curator, yeah, i got to be detective. Yeah, i yeah. got to be all those things. That's a fun That's, part again, of the job, to be honest. For that me. is a fun part of your job. Yes, it and is. you enjoy it, and you make it much easier for clients because of that. Oh, good. When you go into an environmental study, you're obviously anticipatory of bad things. And again, forty years of this, I look at the worst before I look at the best. Mm -hmm. You know, in our in our office, it's like, oh, you're Rosenbergering that. I've become a verb. <laughs> <laughs> but and the reality of it is, I think all of us. Including Steve, including even Nate now, and all those guys are on board with you just don't know. You know, okay, you're, good. Doing, you're yeah. doing one in Cranberry, yes. you just don't know. You're right. And you're looking at a phase one that the bank did 15 years ago that. Wait a and it was a drive-by. Yeah, that's right. That's and now right. we have a standard we have to follow. So yeah. it's not like you can just use your gut, you know, judgment. You still do, but you got to follow this process. So it's well, much I mean, more truly, prescriptive. Your end of the business is only. You know, we used to think that the architectural cost of a new building was the highest cost. 
And uh, it's now it's not the environmental, it's all the it's site development too. Yeah. yeah. All the earth the, the trip line is used in oh, right. experience stuff in Westport, and mm -hmm. you've been familiar with that. So it's a completely different sort of environmental. It is. It's all, it's, well, the whole list of things to do is can be quite vast. And one thing I think we, I think we do a good job of is trying to, you know, as a team, when you said we have a mixed discipline team, it's true. Jonathan's wetlands on environmental. We've got other people with GTEC survey, uh, cultural resources. And we all look at the project at the same time in the very beginning. And we get historic mapping, we get data sets, we get uh, historic information. And we look at that. We do this for every proposal, let alone giving you advice. We look at that together and categorize or rather uh, prioritize which issues seem to be the biggest risk. And then we'll rec recommend what to do in, in a ranking. And that's what we do for all your projects. Well, it is. Us. I think that's the essential part of where the future is going in yeah. this thing is that you have to script your purchase all the way down the road. Mm -hmm. And the risk management when you get to the end of the script is what we're, we're all working right. on today. And it doesn't matter whether it's a a building that manufactured lead widgets 100 years ago. It's brand new land. It's every aspect of it because you just don't know. You don't know. And so like an example, you, we can talk more about this, the cultural resources that you had to come up against. And that's something that caught you a little bit by surprise. Do you get frustrated with some of the process that goes along with it? Because some of it say, say it's cultural resources, say it's a, it's a, it's a uh, outside source that is measuring the significance of what they find. Do you get frustrated that you, that process is all subjective to that individual's opinions? And that rather is, that than- That's a funny answer, and I'm gonna answer that with an ex-employee, past employee, should say ex, retired employee of CEC. Mm -hmm. George Haberman spent his life in the engineering business, yes, right? Yes, he did. That's where he did it. He had residential, he did all these things. And I love him like a brother because he's an interesting guy. He he's is. with him a lot of history. But he is through and through an engineer. The first time that he sat in our office, because he works for us part-time since his retirement, the first time he sat in our office, and I'm obviously noisy, uh, I'm not restrictive of a lot of the things that I should be restrictive of. And it's even harder because there's no easy sites left, right? The, the easy ones are off the table. Uh, there's you know restrictions restrictions on developing Greenfield, or it's too distant from where your tenant wants to be. You've got to be where the people water are. Okay. Water flow, yeah. all the things. All you're, those you're things. You're near the rivers, which is the only flat land. That's true. So you go back out, and let's let's talk a little bit about going back out into the uh, the areas where you're buying raw land. Right. And today, to develop a square foot of real estate is a cubic yard of dirt. Mm -hmm. Do the math. Right. It doesn't take too long if you're going to build 100,000 square feet to say, just for the building pad, I got to move 100,000 yards of dirt. They don't have that problem in Columbus. They don't no, have that they problem don't. in Cincinnati. They don't have that problem in Erie. So we live in Pittsburgh in a, in a geography that is fraught with almost impossible design. Why did it take us so long to get a Amazon facility here? Mm -hmm. And they were trying to shuttle them in from Cleveland. They were trying to bring them in from Erie. They tried everything to avoid building here. Mm. It's because our land cost, from the perspective of moving yardage to its ability to hold buildings of that size, are difficult. And, and once they did that, and once they realized in, in Seattle that the net of it was, it doesn't matter where we go in Western PA, we're going to end up in this situation. So it's not just Pittsburgh or Allegheny County, it's all aspects until you get to the rock ages of Rodney. 
And then once you go north of that, you're in sand and gravel in the glacial plain. You're a developer. How do you know that? <laughs> you know, you do your homework. That's you know where I started out. Yeah, this is your do. Yes, I do. Are you looking to apply your expertise to help clients with their challenges? To bring forth new ideas and ways of solving problems? We are looking for experts like you to join the CEC team. Apply today at cecinc.com slash jobs. So that made me think of a question. So we're talking about site constraints that you can't avoid because that's the geology or that's the sleep, the, the slope, or that's the natural resource that's there. What do you think about, say, southwestern Pennsylvania's climate with municipalities and approvals, regulatory agencies, and community groups? I mean, those are things that keep being added on and added on. Do you think that that's for the better outcome of these these things have happened over time, or is it making it more difficult or somewhere in between? I mean, I think that it's necessary that we protect our environment. And if my kids heard me say that, they'd probably say, thank God, Dad, you are. Uh, but the reality of it is I was the guy that would go in and cut the trees, does it over, and let's build the building. I was pretty happy with that for a long while. The older I get, the more I realize yes. the replanting of all those trees takes a long time it to grow. Does. Our kids so, humble us, that's for sure. Is it harder? Yes. Is it is it in a methodology that works? No. And there are so many contradictions within the systems of permitting. And I have been on the NAOP. Uh, board of the advocacy committee for a long time, and I've truly enjoyed the process of learning a little bit more about how the process works and how can we get permitting to a very simple uh, layer that doesn't have to be 12 agencies. And when we were going through the energy sector growth 10 years ago, there was a tremendous amount of modification to permitting. So there was really a simpler streamliner method. Since that energy sector has since gone soft, what they've done is now begun to create rules and regulations. You know, is the water going to be Army Corps? Is it going to be Conservation District? Is this going to be this or is that going to be that? Where's my trade-off? Can we bank that? Can we pay for that? Can we get it through quicker? Which it's another one of my little hot buttons. Um, but the net of it is. It is more expensive today to prep land than it's ever been in a time that the cost of the land is more expensive than it's ever been in an arena that nobody wants heavy industrial zoning at a time when most young people don't realize that without that, you can't get your package today at four o'clock. So we're in a learning curve again, and it's generational. I was in a learning curve when I was young with the environmentals coming on board with heavy industry. I think the next generation of kids coming up are going to be in a learning curve that says that if we want what we want and we are not willing to live with it, you better go out into the plains because it's the only place it's going to happen. Right. If you want to live in the heavily populated east part of this country, there's going to be a two million square foot building somewhere within your daily activity, whether you like it or not. And that's just a part of our function. It is. But at the same time, it can be built responsibly it could follow you know the development criteria it could be most highly efficient so it generates less carbon in the air because of this efficiency there's all kinds of ways to satisfy that kind of thing well just think one time and, and this is a real simple example of it 
when the strip mines were in western Pennsylvania and the airport, which is still on a strip mine, were fraught with just unearthing of soil and the oozing of sulfur and all the things that were the result of a strip mine. We go in and we take that land, we plant thousands of trees, we environmentally clean up whatever is there, we isolate ponds so that we have wetlands in between the ponds that can clean that water so that when we're done, and we have an example in Westport that is probably the best example of natural wetland that I've ever seen that takes uh, heavy sulfur water. And when it comes to the third pond, it's clean water. Now, I look at the earth and say, the earth is an amazing, amazing place. It's very self-healing. So we're cleaning up the, the issues of our forefathers, unfortunately. And it's expensive to do so. And it requires a lot of junk and ferals to do that. So we completely understand it, but you know ahead of time, your net gain on this thing is gonna be, when you look out the window of that new Amazon facility in Westport, you look out the window at 3,000 trees, you look out the window at something that was stripped by 80 years ago, and it was horrid when you buy it. So I'm very proud of the fact that we can live within the lines, come up with a finished product that is really admirable to society, and people get their packages in, in 12 hours. See, that's a perfect story we should learn more about. And <clears throat> it's just hard to do, Mary. It is hard to do. And it's expensive, and it people expensive. don't want to hear the expense of being in Pittsburgh. And that's where it takes a vision, you know, which you clearly have. And the Pittsburgh area is most definitely has benefited from that. And I, as a, as a resident of this community, am grateful for you being able to do that. I think that's a fabulous story, and I want to do something with what you just told us. You want to check the water today. It just amazes me what natural wetlands do. And, and, yeah. and again, I was the guy that would bulldoze off the trees, burn the wood pile, and plant yeah. corn and be pretty happy with it. But now we've done a the battle. And there's nothing wrong with that either. Uh, it makes us stronger and you know better parent and a better developer. It sure, it sure looks like that to us, and especially your contributions to Pittsburgh. So when we were talking earlier, you said that uh, that you didn't have any regrets and you feel good about the purchases you've made. And I want to ask you, you've never had buyer's remorse on any of these projects. I want to ask you again, because there's some circumstances we discovered that you go, oh, shucks. I'm not sure I enjoyed that's that. exactly what I say, Mary. Yeah, oh, shucks. shucks. <laughs> uh, the nut of it is I think that, that the optimism of a real estate developer is second to none. You just got to have it. And without that optimism, you will not shoulder your way through this thing. You'll die. Because there's so many times when you want to say, we're whooped, we're down, we're dead, we're at the end of the story, we can't do any more, and the project's dead. And then the next morning you wake up and say, wait a minute, there's a phoenix here, and this is what it's about. And truly, I think that if you live in our world, in the real estate world, and you are as optimistic as we are, and you are going to live forever like we are. Uh, yeah. The net of it is um, you find a solution. I think yeah. everything that we do, it's just a matter of what part of the shackles on the lock hit. And when they do, it opens and life goes forward. Now, it may not be the wind that you think it is, or that you hope that it is, but if it's a wind and it's not a loss in our business, that really is a huge hit. I say very, very often, real estate business is one of those ones that you can get wealthy, 
very, 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 very patiently, <laughs> or you can go broke yeah. very quickly. Very quickly. So the patience is the part of it, and the optimism is what keeps yeah. you going. Why do I go in every day at 5.30 and, and look at the world and say, it's a great day today, and my cup is full. And then at the end of the day, I go home, I'm, I'm like, exhausted. Oh God. I'm drained. The cup is empty. <laughs> and I love that aspect of the job. You know, I mean, I share some of that same optimism. I can't say that it's resiliency, but we all look at every project, and our job is to identify problems and do it quickly. We can make it through. And but and also, can we fix it? And that's the fun of working together with your team and our team, because we have fixers amongst our group, and everybody has experience. And this is experience-driven consulting. If, if this is not an easy business, as yours isn't either. Nobody wants to hear what you have to deliver. You're like the doctor in the cancer hospital. Yeah, you're it's like the bad guys. Yeah. However, we have a couple of options here, and that's what you have to stay resilient on, and you have to look at from a very optimistic perspective. Do we have you know, a stream in the middle of the way? Yeah. Yeah. How, how can we design around it? Creative solutions, yeah. I mean, again, that's what we have to do. And I think, you know, one of the things I always challenge George Haberbaugh with, who, again, for the years that we were here with, George, quit thinking like an engineer. <laughs> you said that to me. <laughs> I didn't say it to you. You have to think like, give me the end result that you want and let me posture my brain in that direction. Yeah. Because that's how we have to do it. And if you can do that faster than the developer does it, you have value. Mm -hmm. And I say that all the time to our younger guys on our team. It just takes your brain to be mindset on, I'm not going to let that stop me. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to let that stop me. And you got a Rosenberger. Rosenberger, the verb. The verb. I love that. I'm going to steal it. You know, I think about that, too. I did a presentation last year on brownfields, and I said, you know, we know so much about land development projects that we've learned how to deal with brownfields along the way. And you you start with where you want to be and what you want to do, and you work backwards. Everything works backwards. Where do you want, what do you want to achieve? It can be done. And I, I genuinely believe that. And there's been a few times that it didn't work. Uh, but money fixes everything, which you never want to resort to having that kind of solution. But uh, usually we can figure out a way around it and make well, it work. Federal government, <laughs> money fixes everything. You know, or in state development, they do land development. Too. Yeah. When I look at it, it makes it easy for them. Right. Just call the governor. Call the governor, PennDOT, just plow through, not follow any of those regulations or rules. The rest of the universe has. Commission, same thing. Yes, that's, that's another story for another day, but it's definitely a source of frustration when it comes to projects we work on. Our world today is changing, and again, this it is. is another part of where our generation looks at things and we're pretty straight line, and coming from the engineering side of things, everything is a straight line, and there no longer is a straight line. There is no straight lines in anything. No. It's just changed to the point that you've got to accept it all, try to figure out how it becomes a straight line, make it as straight as you can, plop over, and hope that the end of it is your budgets are doing what they're supposed to do, and that the market doesn't fall apart by the time you get this to a developable or developed pad and put a building on it. And then we've got a downturn in the economy or interest rates decline to 13%. So Has that happened to you? Maybe 2009? Or... You've been through this. You've been through that. In, uh, in 40 years, I've been through four of them. Four of them. And I've had 18% lines of credit. I've had 14% mortgages. I've had every aspect of it. And now we're in the low. Threes to high twos saying, 
Have we ever seen it that low? No, I mean, no, never, no, never. I've never been under six in, in all of my 45 years. Mm -hmm. And I said, I've been as high as 18 on uh, on lines of credit. It's just hard to believe. Hard to believe anybody would do anything in those circumstances. Well, again, it was commensurate with the return. Right. Diesel fuel was only 80 cents. Mm -hmm. You know, you're three dollars and ninety cents for to run that machine out there today. Right. That operator's making thirty-four ninety an hour. I mean, all those things are all they're all commensurate with today's age. And expediency of what you do, you could never do in the time that you do what you do today. In the not too long ago, we would wait two months for an environmental report. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, we need environmental reports today. How long? Ten days, eight days. Right, and that's what makes our, you know, technology has really advanced some of the work that we do and made us better and stronger and faster. Um, it does require experience to give you their opinions, but boy, access to information has changed everything. It's not simple, it's not easy, but at least that technology has advanced yeah. to the point that we get answers answers on a project to make decisions much quicker. Yes, right. no, we're not doing it. Yeah, and you no. ask us for information quicker too. Yes, Mary, where is it tomorrow? In fact, that letter I'm working on, I think I can get exactly you that. Right. Yeah. How, how, are we making progress on that letter today, Mary? You know, I can see the, the email coming across my desk. Well, thank you very, very, very much, Tony. I really appreciate you spending time with us and sharing your experience and knowledge with our audience. I know I learned a lot about some of the projects I'm even working on, let alone the future ones that I hope to work on with you. Well, I hope they give somebody some insight into what we do and how we do it. You know, I invite yeah. all young people to sit and look at this thing and Everybody thinks real estate's easy and it's quick it's and it's not. return and all those things. It's enjoyable if you enjoy it. If and you have the right job, team, right? Yeah, that's, that's a little right. plug. You really need to have good people around you. You really need to have a good sounding board. You have to have a very patient wife. And, <laughs> and, uh, and partnerships that understand that this is not going to guarantee you a return. Yeah. You have a potential of a return. That's it. And that's where we live. And it has him the calling, right? You you have to really enjoy what you're doing, or it's no fun. And that risk reward can can you know really stress people out. And sometimes you can do it. Sometimes sometimes you can. Even on our side for the consulting services, it's not for everybody. But if you enjoy a challenge, you like to work with the team, you like to solve complex problems. This is a place to be. I think that's a lot of the real estate solving of the problems on a day to day basis is exactly what we do. I'm, I'm a ready fire aim guy. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of times there's a dead soldier out there that shouldn't have got shot because I didn't take the time to aim. However, if you're going to run through a lot of material, you better be on that, on the responsible side of not only did I ready fire aim, but I'll shoulder the liability of it as we right. go forward. Uh, I don't have any problem in backboning every one of these things, but again, you can't spend a lot of time sifting through it. You got to get to the gold as quick as you yep. can, and you know how do you do it? You got to pick the good spots, get good boards, get all the things that you need, and then you got to be able to produce to get to get income out of it. Yeah, long, long run. You're never going to know it all. You got to go with eighty percent, and that's where the gut part comes in, yeah, right? Maybe maybe seventy-five, eighty, and then dress his gut. Am I doing the yeah. right thing? It's been a pleasure working with CEC, and, and again, we have a multiple of engineering firms that all do a great job for us, and I think as a young person's profession, biased, obviously, I think it's one of the most interesting for the future just because mm -hmm. it is going to evolve every day. It's never going to be the same. Never boring. And interpretation is going to be 80% of the law, and your gut's the other point. That's right. And that's going to be the rule. Thanks, Mary. Thanks for having me. It was me. fun. Tony, thanks Bye. again. I appreciate it. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of CEC Explains, brought to you by Civil and Environmental Consultants. Got a question about this episode or an idea for our next one? Reach out to us at cecinc.com slash podcast. Don't miss an episode of CEC Explains. Subscribe now wherever you find podcasts. Because when CEC Explains, you're always invited to listen.